This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Inside Story on BFM 89.9. Good evening, I'm Sharad Kutin, and this September the 20th marks the 25th anniversary of the Reformasi movement. So tonight we're going to take a look at the messy origins of this political movement. Joining me on this journey back in time are three individuals you might not associate with the political side of the Reformasi story, but who nevertheless made their own contributions. Uh, but we also want to hear from you and your Reformasi era story. So tell us, where were you when Reformasi began? And how did it shape your sense of the world? And is the country better? off for it. You can call 7733-2900, tweet us at BFM Radio or send us a voice note or WhatsApp at our U-Mobile number 018-789-8899. This is Inside Story. It's 6.19. You're listening to The Inside Story with Gerard Kutten. It's the 25th anniversary of Reformasi. So we're speaking to people who were there. Master Lisa Hamza, Jokukta is my guest today on the show. Uh, but we also want to speak to you. I'll hear what you have to say. Uh, where were you when Reformasi began? How did it shape you? And is the country better off for it? You can call 7733-2900, send us a voice note or WhatsApp us at our U-Mobile number 018-789-8899 or tweet us at BFM Radio. Now, the street dem- demonstrations, I think, uh, captured the imagination. Not just the Malaysians, but because it's the stuff that media likes because mm. it's so dramatic and, and there's a spectacle, right? But I wonder about this because we had a long period, if you think about it, when we last had those kind of street demonstrations. I know, in fact, was involved, right? The students yeah. in the 70s, you know, and going to Baling. Uh, that's the last time we saw that kind of energy, though we had seen some of it happening in Indonesia just that year. I want to ask you, Joe, you know, um, for your circle of friends, um, you know, uh, involved in theatre, but, you know, politically and socially conscious, Mm -hmm. uh, did it um, divide opinion? Because you were, you know, dealing with Dr. Mate and his policies, but Anwar was part of that government until that point. And so he couldn't have been a particular favourite among your circle. Well, yes and no. I mean, everybody was fair game, but, you know, and sometimes we were accused of, of favouring uh, uh, Anwar over Mathia. And in fact, I remember at um, a um, trade ministers and finance ministers conference in Langkawi, I think earlier that year or, or the year before, um, Anwar told me this years later that uh, we had done this show. And of course, we're talking we're talking about the stuff which is sort of like flashpoints, right? So of course, it's critical of Mahathir. And this um, was a dinner show, was it? A dinner show. It was, it was a delegate. It was a foreign ministers' delegation, foreign ministers and finance and trade ministers. So it was all business, right? And of course, we get invited along to this, and we sort of make fun of everything. And and Anwar was sitting in the front table and often he had his head in his hands, but he was laughing. And then he told me this many years later that actually he got into trouble for that show when he came back to the cabinet and there was he was accused in the cabinet of of, of, of hiring us in order to to belittle Dr. Mahathir. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, in fact, after that show, um, some of the protocol officers pulled us aside to sort of also berate us. And we said, but this is what we do. You know, this is what we do. 
then why, why did you hire? Why did you hire us? Right? But you know, already because there was so much tension in the air. So I've lost your question now. Please, yeah. Sorry. Well, you, you exactly that. You know, um, th- that was a time when there was already tension, yeah. uh, as you mentioned. Uh, it you and you, the work that you were doing, you were lampooning politicians at that yeah. point. But, but the question was really about so, your social circles. And Mas, oh, yeah, right. I want to ask you, mm-hmm. Mas, before I come back to you, Joe, mm-hmm. about this, which is what happens in a newsroom, right? Or in, oh, let's just even broaden that because one, Anwar was part of the establishment, had been for 16 years uh, or something of that sort uh, by that time. Um, and he, he did a divide opinion even then. What was your feeling and what was it like when you talked to your friends about whether you should be part of this reformasi movement or not? I think um, for me, um, I don't really talk about it with everyone. I, I was very selective in terms of who I could speak about this to. I had my own little bubble, and these are people I know who would go with me shopping every Saturday in front of Sogo. And, <laughs> you know, yeah. So, um, but I remember we were talking about it in, in you know, in my desk. Uh, we were talking with, with the other reporters as well as with the editor. And people, I think, journalists sometimes bring their own personal biases into how they view it. It's like, I don't like Anwar because, you know, his um, bodyguards were jerks and pushed me Mm -hmm. aside. So there were all these things that were also dragged in Mm -hmm. rather than look at the issue clearly in terms of the treatment of Anwar Ibrahim Mm -hmm. at that point in time. to sort of see the imbalance of power and what was being done. This this is maybe in the lead up to the the arrest. But being in a mainstream media at that point in time was quite I call it being in the belly of the beast because it became really unbearable. You have this you, you go shopping, quote unquote, where you go to all these demonstrations every Saturday. You see people being beat up. In fact, one of I think the the, the biggest things that I remember to this day is this machi who's like wearing a, a, a t-shirt or something and women, he, she was clearly, you know, she had been beaten up or something in, in the back alley. They chased after her and then there was all these um, women um, FRU officers carrying her and while they were carrying her, you know, her tudung is like, you know, pulled to one side. You could see a little bit of a belly, that kind of thing and she was like, you know, dragged in front of people, carried in front of people. And I was like thinking, where's the dignity in all this? Mm-hmm. It was quite, it, it, I think that's one thing that I remember quite clearly to this day. You see all these things and then you go back to your newsroom and you read the newspapers the next day and it's like, why are we talking as if the police were really clean? The FRU were not beating up people. Yeah. You know, was this a violent demonstration as it's being painted in the media. So working in the mainstream media at that point in time... it was yeah. it was, it was, it was, it was tough. Yeah, it was tough. Yeah. Joe, I want to mm-hmm. ask you about this because the violence was, in fact, used uh, the apparent violence of the, of the demonstrators, as opposed to the the state officials uh, and enforcement officers, was used as a way to paint the movement as being essentially anti-democratic. Right. Did that cause you some concern about what was happening on the street, and did it affect your friends? I think that, you know, a lot of my friends are journalists as a lot of my friends are working in NGOs and well, people who 
um, I think more than I had friends who were artists. But I think, of course, within Instant Cafe and the, the, the people that I knew, I think that they weren't afraid of of um, they were they weren't afraid of of going onto the street and and um, being part of. Uh, this questioning of what was going on, because I think we see we've seen it as part of a historical shift that things had been very authoritarian in this country, and then shifting into a higher register of authoritarianism. And at what point? At what point do you say no? And I think because we'd come from a place where we, this had happened before and nobody had said anything, it's like, well, do we do this again? I, 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 and that's why I think you know when um, when uh, when, I, when I say this happened. And I remember meeting with a group of friends and we, you know, we were a loose group of friends from all kinds of areas and a lot of artists, architect, one of them was an architect. Um, I think you were part of that, right? I well. probably was. You, was. you were. <laughs> and that's when we had this idea of having, well, let's just question what this is and just put up these question marks everywhere. So the idea of the question mark to say, we don't know what to say, but we're questioning what you're doing. And let's put question marks. I remember, th- I think I was kind of thinking about Monty Python when, you know, the, the, the Romans were, the 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 insurgents were, were, were putting keys, keys everywhere. And I thought, we, we should just paint question marks all over the city. Right. And so we'll come back to that, the question of the artist community and the artistic community and creatives and how they responded to the crisis at that mm. point. But very quickly, Mas, uh, thoughts on tear gas? Because tear gas was <laughs> definitely in the air uh, of those days. My thoughts on tear gas? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Did you, well, was it your first time to get tear gassed? Actually, yes. I think... Um, I mean, just being out in the streets, taking part in a street protest, mm. that was in Malaysia, that was the first for me. Then that fear uh, of being arrested, I'm like thinking, what happens? And I, I remember every time before I go out, I would tell one sister, I'm doing this. And she said, is there any way you don't do this? I said, I don't think so. <laughs> but I always carry a backpack and in my backpack, Always, always clean underwear, um, you know, a toothbrush, uh, a a clean T-shirt. Yes. Actually, at that point in time, I wasn't thinking of tear gas. There wasn't anything to to cover. But there was always this, if you're not tear gas, then you haven't, it's not exciting. (laughs) If you haven't had to run away from the FRU, it's not exciting. You know, so there's, there's all these things that was happening as well. But... I had a great time. I had a wonderful time. Okay, there so was a lot of adrenaline. Okay, so there was a lot of adrenaline, and maybe do you think uh, very quickly before we go, we have to go to another break. Um, that in looking back, those grim moments, the violence, the tear gas, seem much less significant or less onerous. We can sort of wear it lightly. We can think of that history lightly, Joe. Yeah, I mean. And like Mas, I think I wasn't thinking, oh, no, we're going to get tear gassed. But just you have to go because you're so angry with what's going on that you just think the only way to express this anger is to show that you're angry and take to the streets. Because I didn't want any record book saying nobody cared, nobody nobody minded. Because, you know, unfortunately, the papers couldn't report it the way that it should be reported. So the only way to do it is to be photographed. Their numbers. Okay. We do need to take a break, uh, but we'll be back with more on the messy origins of Reformacy. Stay tuned. BFM 89.9. Be free minded. BFM 89.9. 
It's uh, 6.39 and you're listening to Inside Story with Sharad Kutin. It's the 25th anniversary of Reformasi and we're getting into its messy origins to the extent that we can remember them because there's not just <laughs> COVID fog apparently, there's also <laughs> the fog of time. Now, we want to hear from you, of course. Uh, where were you when Reformasi began? How did it shape you? And do you think the country is better off? For it, you can call double seven double three two nine hundred. Tweet us at BFM Radio and or send us a voice note or WhatsApp message at zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine. This is Inside Story. Now, in the, the studio with me, I have uh, human rights activist Masjid Jaliza Hamza and also actor Joe Kukatas. But before we get to both of you, and here we have a voice note from Alta uh, explaining his experience of the Reformasi movement. Hi guys, actually uh, regarding this reformacy, I have not, I'm not affiliated to any political party or movement. It's just that on that particular day when Anwar got arrested, okay, I was on my way to meet my girlfriend who later become my wife, okay. <laughs> so I was on my way when I was passing by in front of the Masjid Negara, I saw this large number of people shouting, screaming, you know. I was quite curious, but never bothered to know what is going on, you know. I thought maybe, uh, uh, what they call, uh, some some uh, some uh, religious event or rally or what. And then at that, that day, that night itself, when I was with her, my girlfriend, my wife, okay. <laughs> and... Uh, I then noticed uh, what they call this uh, heli police helicopter was flying around and around and around and around, you know, non-stop, and with the uh, with this uh, with this uh, what they call spotlight on. So I told my girlfriend, I said something is not right. Something is really not right. Huh? I see this. I can tell that that's a police police helicopter. And uh, it's roaming around. I said that something is not right. So true enough, the very next day got the news that Anwar got arrested. So, <laughs> so that is my what we say. What I can say is my 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 link with reformacy, not political. <laughs> Thanks, Arthur. That's a lovely story. And also, I think, in many ways, reflects the reality of, of most Malaysians as the as the moment kind of became clearer to people, as you know, um, and the rest in particular, I think, uh, then moved this from just a political movement to something much more uh, serious in terms of the fate that Anwar was going to suffer as a consequence and also where the country was going. Um, what do you think about that, uh, you know, Mas? Did you notice a lot of people just very slowly being clued into what was happening in the country? I, I think so. I think there were a lot of young people who were maybe influenced by their parents as well, who went to these rallies. Uh, that's one. <clears throat> Two, I think it, in some ways, one thing I wanted to say uh, that, that I still remember to this day is that at that point in time, there was this idea that like, oh, um, the police will never go into mosques with their mm. shoes on. I, I remember that was quite big then. 
And you know what? If and and Malays are always courteous and da 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 whatever. <laughs> so all these myths were like busted during <laughs> reformasi. You know, the police went into um went into Masjid Jame, went into Masjid Negara with their boots on, chasing after people. So you know, all these things I think were were part and parcel of it. So it was a real, in a way, a, a, an awakening for a lot of people in terms of the assumptions that they think uh, people in authority, you know, there was this like maybe at some level, some trust. Maybe this is more relevant to Malays, maybe. I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just, you know, like, like exploring. Um, they, you know, as a community, if I could say that, like you have this idea and some of these things are like maybe uh, sacrosanct or whatever, it will never happen, you know, Malays will never be, uh, you know, uh, will, will never be against government, not in the way that a lot of other activists, many of whom were non-Malays, were were already, you know, being pigeonholed and being being painted as anti-government. If you are a human rights activist at that point in time, you are against government. If you have an opinion mm. that is different from what the government of the day held at that point in time, you are anti-government. Mm. And you are a threat and the chances of you being arrested are quite real. You know? Yeah, in fact, I think um, what is true that if you were in the human rights movement or the uh, environmental movement at that point in time, and in the 90s, it was a very lonely time yeah, because yeah. Uh, Malaysia was doing well until the Asian financial crisis, mm-hmm. and people were not interested to in know who was suffering as a consequence of development policies that, that the government had had or had put in place for a long time. Joe, your sense of how people who are not politicized mm-hmm. reacting to what was happening in the country? Well, um, I remember in you know trying to get people together, right? So we tried to have um, this meeting of artists uh, and you know concerned citizens. So we didn't want to just make it artists, but just concerned citizens. Of course, we knew mostly we we're trying to kind of see how artists felt. And because um, so, Puvan Savanathan was a close friend of mine, and he was one of the people who we would have all these kind of like ad hoc meetings with. So he said, "Well, we can have it at his venue. Uh, um, what was it called?" Um, Mists of time, mists of time. I can't remember. Anyway, <laughs> the fog of time. It was, kind of some, it was a sort of cinema vet venue, and um, of course, you know, and again, like people came because the, I don't know what the network we had back then, but people did turn up. But I remember having a quite a big difference of opinion at the time with Christian, Christian Jit, you know, very important artist, uh, um, um, theatre director in Malaysia and uh, leading artist of the time, still leading artist, um, and he um, he said to me, "This is not the job of artists." You know, this is this is not what artists should do, and I kind of felt quite the opposite because I mean, even my theatre company was started as a response to, um, you know, Operation Lalang. So the the theatre was started as a response to politics. So I said, no, I think that's what artists do. Artists do respond to things which are political. So that I remember the pe- people in that space being quite divided um, about that. You know, uh, and I, d- I don't know whether there's also some element of fear, but mm. you know, I think there was a division there, um, and also this feeling that. Outside this, a lot of people just had no idea and didn't really... You know, it's like Wayang, right? It was all these big gods and demons fighting each other, the, the little, you know, the... The, the, um, the little people. The little people are just sort of looking on in kind of disbelief, right? Your pat dogol, like, what's going on? I do think that um, if 
a big chunk of Malays uh, then were happy with what's what was happening, not questioning their privileges and all that. Mm. I think the arrest of Anwar Ibrahim really challenged that yes, notion. Yes. Yeah. So so for me that that was the biggest value that Reformasi brought to this country. Interesting. And hold that thought. We need to take a quick break. Um, we're marking the 25th anniversary of Reformasi. Keep your thoughts coming and your voice messages and call in if you want. Um, but stay tuned. BFM 89.9. Be free, Malaysia. BFM 89.9. The Business Station. It's 6.47. I'm Sharad Kutin with me, Masjaliza Hamza and Joko Katas. And we're talking about the 25th anniversary of Reformasi and struggling uh, with the fog of time to remember exactly <laughs> what happened and when it happened in sequence. Uh, not the easiest thing to do. Uh, we do want to hear from you as well. Where were you when Reformasi began? How did it shape you? And is the country better off for having it? Right? You can call us uh, 7733 Tweet us at BFM Radio or send us a voice note or WhatsApp at 018-789-8899. We do have a voice message from Daniel. Hi, Team BFM. Uh, during Reformacy and the demonstration, actually I was struggling in uh, Glen Eagles Hospital, sleeping on the floor for two weeks while our eldest son was going through his heart surgery. He was only 18 months old. And uh, that was Reformacy for me. Our doctors was also talking about it. I was, of course, uh, very politically uh, well aware of the whole situation. Uh, even as a young student in school right up to university, I was following the politics not of only Malaysia, but also of the rest of the world, including uh, the People's Revolution in the Philippines in 1986. So, uh, yeah, the 1998, uh, uh, Reformacy was nothing uh, extraordinary for me in that context because I was really following the People's Revolution. And I think, yeah, it has changed Malaysia. For better or for worse, it has changed Malaysia. Thank you. Thank you, Daniel. That's a very important point to make that a lot of our lives, ordinary people, everything continued while this drama was unfolding. Uh, I don't want to get to something that um, I find very important because I think it marked a particular uh, inflection point for the media in Malaysia. And, and Mas, I know because you were working in the Star, I, and I think many of our friendships were actually uh, in this very studio were formed uh, in the smithy of, uh, of Reformasi. So tell us about the Star, a little bit about how the newsroom was divided and what do you think was the consequence of how the mainstream media then remember we didn't really have an alternative media the internet was just starting um, what, what impact did it have? I think um, for journalists I, I can say in the star for example from my experience um, we don't talk say people from features and the other desks don't really talk to people in news desks. So there seems to be some sort of um, divide between the two. Whether it's real or not, that's something else. But certainly, the news that are being churned out would come from news desks. And if you are in, in features desk, then you look at it and you're like, what kind of thing are we publishing? And I remember clearly one headline that um, put out this photo big photo in the star front page of what was happening in Indonesia. Sort mm -hmm. of giving, you know, basically saying, hey, this happened in Indonesia. Chinese were murdered in Indonesia. Is this what you want happening in Malaysia? Mm -hmm. And that 
caused quite a bit of, um, you know, discussion, debate. Uh, you know, people were talking about it, you know, talking with each other and having different opinions on it to the point where as part of the um, union in the star, we actually had to address this. Our membership was saying, why are we doing this? Why is the headline so different than the reality that we know of uh, that's happening in, in you know, out there? And, and at that point in time, whether we believe it, I mean, right now it, it's hard to believe it, but remember um, passes, um, pass, uh, what do you call that, that publication? The haraka. Organ? Yes. Pe- a lot of people were buying Haraka yeah. because Haraka was the place where you could read news about you know, reformasi, yeah. about the demonstrations, etc. No, it played a pivotal role. I remember the, the, the publication just like jumped up in terms of, of, of circulation because it, it filled a gap that the other, at that point in time, there were only newspapers and radio, TV. You know, there's a huge gap that was not being being filled up. And at the start, the, for the first time ever, journalists who are, you know, like regular journalists are asking um, uh, uh, editors, why are you, are you doing this? And I remembered there was even a meeting where some journalists were called up. And I remember my, my boss then <laughs> was like calling me and saying... Oh, let's call in the rebel rousers. <laughs> so I was called in, and I was like thinking, uh, you know, like, and I remember like saying, articulating this question of that, uh, you know, f- headline, and the front page, uh, a photo, and all that, mm-hmm. and asking the question, why, why are you doing this? So I looked around. There were people I know who behind you know, outside of that room were actually very sympathetic. But at that point in time, there was only one person who I felt was backing me up. So it was quite, you know, it was really lonely to be questioning in a mainstream newsroom at that point in time. But, Sharad, before you go anywhere else, I wanted to say, this is how, in a way, we show dissent in the newsroom. Um, on Friday, on Wednesday nights, there was this call to like, you, you know, I think Malaysians and maybe Gera and, and Fadir Noor from past at that point in time one said, maybe we could do something simple. So every Friday night at a certain time, we'll turn off the lights, then there will be darkness. So what we did in our newsroom, our newsroom was like a different newsroom, quite flat before. I could, I could see like one from one end to the other, I could see the newsroom. So on Wednesday night, on our side, the features desk, we would stay there there, you know, quite a while and turn off the lights just to show like, hey, it's not, everyone's not on that front page at the same time with everyone else. We do have different opinions on this. Okay, we do actually have a caller. Aslinda is on the line. Aslinda, what are your thoughts about Reformasi? Right. I remember those days vividly because I was a news reader at that point of time. Mm-hmm. And uh, reading on RTM, I had to read that uh, very infamous news about what had happened to the Deputy Prime Minister. So because of my curiosity, I went to town uh, a couple of days after that, uh, besides going to the house of our current PMX to listen to his rallies. When I was in town after he was um, sort of like apprehended and arrested, the worst part was when I saw lots of FRU trucks in town. And uh, I just wanted to go and see what it was like to experience all this when uh, it's something that you will never be able to experience again. I saw people on the streets 
FRE officers with canes. Mm. And they were sitting, sitting, sitting around, you know, every corner on Jalan Tunku Abdul Rahman. It's a place you go for shopping, right? But you find them looking at you with those canes and you're just worried that someone might get snapped, you know, in the back with that. And the other good thing that um, I learned from it was everybody was patiently watching, not really doing everything at the same time. Mm. But um, I also had the opportunity to go to court as a normal civil um, person, as a, you know, just an, as an ordinary citizen. And I went to court to listen to some of the court moments and I had to queue. And mind you, those experiences are so valuable. I wouldn't trade them in for anything else because I was very fortunate to have gone through that without any fear actually but with a belief that things would turn up positive and it has anyway Aslinda, so, a very quick question for you um, what would you tell a generation that didn't experience reformacy what would you tell them about it alright first and foremost I'll say this to them um, you know it's not a very good uh, experience for some people but it is something for you know when you want change you have mm. to go all out for it and always fight for the right things. Do not ask for something which is illegal or not going to be of benefit to any generation after your own. It's not easy. It's a big risk. But I guess everybody's got uh, that you know, ability to think hard. If it's not good for the economy, sometimes it's just you know, for temporary basis, on temporary basis, because there's a, a bit of a hoo-ha in the country. But if it's going to make a bigger turn, a better turn, just like, you know, the vicious cycle that goes up and down, so anything that goes down will come up again. <laughs> it's okay. Take the risk and just go for it and hope for the best. Thank you so much, Azlinda. Yeah, so, okay, we have three minutes left before <laughs> we have to go to the 7 o'clock news. So, a quick round from the both of you about, yeah, exactly what I asked Azlinda. What would you tell a generation that didn't experience reformacy about what you learned, what was core to it? Mas? Um, for me, it's courage. Because I think um, we need to stand up when we see an injustice being done. Mm. Before that, you may have fear that other people do not feel the same way. But with Reformasi, I felt like the, the, those feelings sort of came to the fore. People came together. And, you know, there was like a lot of defiance. Mm. You think you would beat me and the next week, you know, I will come back. Mm. As, as a grouping, I think a lot of people. I found my courage during that period. And I've, I feel like I've never looked back since. Thank you. I think it's about numbers. You know, I think what one of the things that really upset me in the earlier years, people said, oh, but nobody feels that way. Nobody feels like this. And so uh, people kept quiet for a very long time. And even if you had those conversations, you were quiet. But you cannot say nobody cares if you see bodies on a street, uh, either running, going somewhere, marching, protesting. And I think the visibility, making, pe- make, making your body visible, making your body available to be seen to be a visible sign of protest, that's, that changes things. You know, it wasn't just in Jakarta or in the Philippines that people were standing up and saying they want justice. It was here as well. And then the solidarity in that. I think always, I think always have that feeling of solidarity with other people you're not alone if you feel something's wrong find your find your tribe be with them yeah wonderful uh, speaking to both of you because it does remind me of the many things that did happen and what we were all involved in and it did in fact uh, form friendships i think that yeah. lasted decades now 
Thank you so much, Joe. Thank you so much, Mas. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you, Sharon. I've been speaking to actor Joe Kukatas and human rights activist Mas Jaliza Hamza. After this, we'll be joined by academics Samit Mandal to speak about reformasi both here and in Indonesia. But remember, we do want to hear from you, so do call or send us a voice note or tweet us at BFM Radio. Bombing frustrated minds. BFM 89.9. It's uh, eight minutes past seven, and uh, we're doing the inside story. And I'm Sherrod Kutten. It's the 25th anniversary of Reformasi. We're exploring its origins. Very messy, especially with the fog of time. And to help me, a partner in the fog of time, Sumit Mandal, Associate Professor at the School of Politics, History and International Relations at the University of Nottingham, Malaysia. Now, before Sumit, I get you to come and help us understand uh, a little bit about the regional context. Just a quick note to our listeners that in the late 90s, many governments in Southeast Asia were considered authoritarian, and each of them had their own forms of resistance or pro-democracy movements. But in May of 1998, General Suharto, who had been in power for some 32 years, was toppled by mass demonstrations. Now, in September of that same year, Dr. Mate, already in power for 17 years, sacked and arrested the Deputy Prime Minister. With mass demonstrations breaking out around the country, it looked like Dr. Mate might share Suharto's fate. But it wasn't, or he didn't, rather. Now, joining me... Sumit, um, to help me understand the context, uh, Sumit, of course, is also, just to note, a co-editor of a volume of scholarly essays on that time. Uh, it's titled Challenging Authoritarianism in Southeast Asia. And it was published some five years after the Reformasi movement. Sumit, very quickly, before we get to some of the voice notes that have come in and messages that come in, um, your association with Indonesian Malaysian, how does that kind of play into your scholarly work? Well, I did my PhD on an aspect of Indonesian history, colonial history. But after returning to a job in Malaysia, I got much more interested and involved in projects um, connected to uh, democratizing movements in the region. And one of, the, one of those projects resulted in the book Challenging Authoritarianism. And what's interesting about it is the, the, my co-editor Ariel Herianto and, and I, we were Indonesian-Malaysian working together. And one of the things we were trying to um, sort out was how we get trained in Australia, um, the US typically, but there weren't connections between academics within Southeast Asia. So um, I attended a meeting which Ariel Herianto held in Singapore where he was teaching at the time, and we began in some ways, a kind of academic collaboration across the region that mirrored the kinds of responses that were emerging in other sectors of life to the kind of authoritarianism you're talking about. Right, so that's fascinating, and it sets up the context of our conversation falling forward. But I do want to do one thing before we go and wrap up the kind of memory uh, stock-taking that we've been doing, Samir, on the show today, and that's uh, from Daniel Abishegam. So my story is a little bit after the start of Reformasi itself. So in 1999, I was in A-levels in a private college in the center of the city. And there was some kind of a demonstration going on. And, and, and the, the administrators of the college came in and, and kind of shuttered the college and said, uh, uh, you know, you guys need to go home. This was a reflection of the genuine fear of any kind of demonstration that there was there at the time. 
So some of us, uh, friends of mine, 19 years old, excited, we ran along, we went to see the demonstrations, we were standing by the wayside for most of it, but uh, uh, we joined in after a bit. Now this was not just us being uh, silly kids, but most of us that joined in knew what was going on, but but it was a lot of uh, excitement and, and just the sense of uh, something huge is going on and just we wanted to be a part of it. But then the police used tear gas and, and there, was, there was beating of people and things like that. And that, I think that was a turning point for me. So this was no longer just fun. This was real. That day, I still remember that day, being choked with tear gas and narrowly escaping some beating from the FRU guys and things like that. It was a really eye-opener and, and... I mean, I was already someone that followed politics and, and uh, I mean, what was going on really closely, but that, that solidified it for me. Um, yeah, so that is my little snippet of Reformasi. Thank you, Daniel, for that. Um, we also actually have a voice note from Bing, but I'm going to play it. I just want to make note that Bing reminds us, Sumit, uh, that the Commonwealth Games were being hosted at that point in time. He said that he felt really embarrassed by what was going on um, and you know, uh, cast a, a more cynical um, kind of shade on on the politicians, uh, the uh, you know, and the stakeholders at that point in time. But let's put that aside. I think uh, there are many people for whom this is a very ambivalent point in our history. But there's something that Daniel brings up, and that was violence. And I wonder if we can address that because there was something in what was happening in Indonesia that was a kind of foil to what was happening here, and violence was part of that story. Could you help us understand a bit about? The, um, the quality of the Indonesian Reformasi movement in contrast to Malaysia's? Well, um, in 1996, there was an effort by what was then the Indonesian Democratic Party to um, call for greater electoral um, reform, uh, electoral uh, freedom. And as that party's voice grew under the leadership of a woman named Megawati Sukarno Putri, who was the daughter of the charismatic leader Sukarno, the Suharto government became extremely um, insecure. And they took very harsh action against um, the party headquarters. And, you know, vile, there was enormous violence. And so in some ways, uh, as Daniel was saying earlier, it's state repression of that kind... Um, has, yes, the power to quell, but also the power to um, force violent responses in return. Um, from 1996 onwards, I think, in Indonesia, there were, you know, there was an escalation of um, protests and organization in different forms uh, prior, long before Suharto stepped down in 1998. So, I think if we maybe if we moved away from the language of violence, what what interests me more is the scale of things in Indonesia, right? From long before, from the period of Indonesian national independence already, we're talking about movements that include that involve tens of thousands of people, and similarly in in um, the nineties, protest movements, um, demonstrations in Jakarta and elsewhere. In, involve a huge scale, and that alone, I think, um, was uh, 
remarkable for many Malaysians and others who are unfamiliar or, or you know, had lost the familiarity with mass demonstration. So I would think that that yeah. maybe even more than violence was was very big in the minds of people. That's fascinating because you mentioned the question of losing familiarity in the early 70s. We had mass demonstrations by students. And then, of course, after Reformasi, it took some years, but the Bursa movement kind of picked up on the power of people massing and, and protesting and showing dissent. Now, we're going to have to take a short break, Sumit, but we'll be back with more on uh, memories of Reformasi. Building Fit Malaysians, BFM 89.9. It's 7.18. You're listening to Inside Story with Sherrod Kutin. We're continuing our conversation on the 25th anniversary of Reformasi about this uh, project, a movement for democratization and reform. Uh, with me is uh, academic historian uh, Sumit Mandal from the University of Nottingham, Malaysia. Now, uh, we want to zoom in on something that, you know, we tried to pick up with Joko Kathas earlier, which was the question of the response of the um, artistic community. You had written a chapter in that book I mentioned earlier, Creativity in Protest, Artists, Arts Workers and the Recasting of Politics and Society in Indonesia and Malaysia. Why is it important, Sumit, for you to pick up this particular lens uh, to talk about this moment in history? Well, it was something that really interested me at the time because I learned a great deal from artists and journalists um, coming to the university, coming returning to Malaysian universities. Um, I, it, it didn't, the university didn't always feel at the time to be the most lively um, spaces for for intellectual expression. And as, as a result of that, I, when I got involved in this uh, book project, I thought I'm going to look at artistic expression across these two countries. And um, one of the things I learned in the course of doing the project was, again, in parallel to the kind of different scale of politics and different level of um, organizational histories. I mean, we have to think, for instance, that the Communist Party of Indonesia was formed in 1920. In 1954, 1955 had two million members. The, I just looked up the in Indonesian Islamic uh, Party, Nahdlatul Ulama, or organization rather. It has, um, according to uh, Britannica at least, 25 million members. So um, the scale reflects a very different kind of um, society. And artists frequently um, were... Well, what what, does, what what do I mean by very different kinds of society? A society where there was enormous uh, poverty, there was a great deal of inequality, and artists frequently picked up on that and were working very hard to um, um, to to understand social the the social the, this inequality and the social realities of poverty in Indonesia through their art. So you had um, an, an, a sculptor named Muliono an artist in Mulion, named Mulyono who would go out into rural areas, poverty-stricken areas, and do his art there. I use that example because that sort of context even doesn't didn't really exist in Malaysia at the time. 
Yeah, what is interesting about that, because when I look back at that time, Sumit, I do remember things like the theatre production of Marcina Mugugat, which it told the story of a worker, right? And the, the workers' movement in Indonesia was very important. I do want to ask you about Widji Tukul, because he was an important poet of the of the Indonesian revolution of, of that period. Could you tell us, uh, remind us about his story and, and how it relates to the question of uh, state repression? But a little bit about Marcina before we do that. Uh, Gunawan Muhammad, who is a very well-known poet and, and intellectual, uh, said about her that had she had artists not intervened, she would have been one of numerous bodies of activists strewn, you know, in some nameless place, uh, never to be remembered. But it was artistic intervention that brought Masina to the to the um, to the public eye, and very interestingly also, and a visual artist in Malaysia then later on picks up the story of Masina. So that has crossed boundaries. But Vijitukul was somebody who um, emerged from, from a very poor background, was not a self-taught poet, who, whose voice um, became very powerful among the, the student movements and uh, workers' movements, farmers' movements. And uh, so he was really a very much a kind of people's poet. And as a result, he became an enormous threat to to the Suato regime. And he and some others, um, many experts believe, were, were disappeared. Do, do you think so? But there there were people as um, you know as important in the artistic community here um, um, that helped shape that. In fact, became a threat to uh, Mahathir's administration of the nineties. I think you know. I'd, I'd, write, I'd rather not say were there people as important, right? Because the contexts are just so different, right? You didn't have, you weren't going to, you weren't likely to be losing your life. In Indonesia, people were losing their lives, whether in the course of a, a, a security force confrontation or through the more insidious means of being disappeared. But I think, yes, I think artists here set, um, establish um, the foundations for thinking about freedom, about creativity, um, long before the Reformasi movement uh, came into play. Right. So I think even when we speak about uh, visual art that some might feel is is elitist or being shown only in relatively um, um, elite se- uh, se- segments of society. But the act of the, the acts taken, for instance, by um, Wong Hoi Chong, the kinds of art that he produced that challenged um, actions taken, repressive actions taken by the the state, were, I think, powerful statements. I mean, it's in some ways it helps you to imagine the possibility of of challenging authoritarianism. Yeah, in fact, I'd like to boast that I contributed a tear gas canister. I picked up one of those demonstrations uh, to one of Hoi Chong's works. Um, there's an interesting w- a word that you use, and it really it's helpful in terms of tr- how we think about the past. Is the word recast, right? You talk about uh, how work. workers in the artistic or creative sector were recasting politics and society. Do you think, because there was also an academic correlate to that, which was the idea of new politics that emerged, and there was a lot of, uh, there were production of essays around new politics, and I think of Francis Lowe's work and so on. Um, 
when we look back, did we expect more than we that was delivered by the moment? Because that's, I think, the contemporary criticism. Did we expect more in terms of political change? Yeah. I don't remember um, doing research at the time and and also being a participant in some of the activities of the time. I don't remember, at least in the Malaysian instance, some great promise of political change, right? I think it was quite clear that you're dealing with a fairly strong force um, and a, very, a fairly strong state and, and repressive mechanisms that were quite different from Indonesia. We could talk about that. Indonesian intellectuals often made note of the kind of differences in forms of repression. But I think um, there was the courage there taken by artists and other social activists was simply in actually opening up the boundaries of imagination, challenging um, acts like the Internal Security Act, which was used to suppress uh, political dissent. Um, I think uh, ch challenging the racialized politics, trying to build a kind of Malaysian um, a na a national identity all those things became uh, subversive. It's interesting. Now you work in a university and you have for many decades. I, I want to ask you about the Indonesian university because I, I believe there were um, young people who had these Klompok Diskusi and the Kadong Obo was a famous uh, cause. They took up a, a dam that was being built. Correct me if I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. Was there something similar here too in terms of where the, was, was, was the university or the locus for a kind of dissent, and where has that gone? And the Kadungombo incident is very interesting because it was also about, it was the state using force to remove a uh, population of villages, and university students uh, gathered to, to help protect that, to help prevent that, that uh, expulsion of people. Um, and it, it's a nice way to then set up, the, again, the, the very different context. So Indonesian universities, like other official institutions, were highly regulated. So to, one quick example to, to, to share what that means is um, the, they, they had uh, courses built into the university system that were mandatory, which required you to learn um, a, a Panchasila, sort of Panchasila culture, Panchasila education, and that would be the five principles, sort of uh, the Indonesian um, counterpart of uh, Malaysia's Rukun Negara. But in the Indonesian case, they became part of a kind of repressive educational mechanism that actually in the late 80s and early 90s, I remember meeting university students who were just really fed up of it. For one thing, because there was very little intellectual content, nothing interesting. They had to do it and they 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 really reacted against that. In the Malaysian context, you didn't have that level of regulation and, and, and state intervention. It, was, it took a different form. And I think uh, for many, many Indonesians, it felt like in Malaysia, Indonesian intellectuals would tell me in Malaysia, you know, you, you know your government is actually much smarter because it allows for intellectual life to thrive to some extent doesn't sort of bulldoze uh, uh, smaller communities and, and others, you know, and, and use violence and force. Whereas that was what 
um, Indonesia was facing. Um, so I think in Malaysia, a, a stronger kind of in, you know intellectual response emerged within universities. It wasn't as powerful. It wasn't able to spill out to, uh, except in rare circumstances, like again, the early 70s and the Berlin, the case of immense poverty in Berlin, when university students went up. But for a good 25 years, that didn't happen around the reformacy years. And at that time, what we have is university intellectuals who were critical and resistant to the state, but um, really uh, remained largely within the university community. Thank you so much, Sumit. You know, actually, there's, there's time, no time to go into all the rich history that um, Indonesia and Malaysia shares in terms of the Reformasi movement. Um, I've been speaking to Sumit Mandal, Associate Professor in the School of Politics, History and International Relations at the University of Nottingham, Malaysia. Unfortunately, we run out of time. That's all we have on Inside Story today. Keep it here, BFM 89.9. You've been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, Download the BFM app.